Who wrote the Bible? Interesting question. Does a question like this even matter? If Christianity is what modern American Christians think that it is, then it seems to me that not only does the question not matter, but as far as their thinking goes, it's a product of misguided thinking at its core to begin with. Now that raises the question, why should we as believers concern ourselves with a nation of mostly godless pagans anyways? Why, 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 I mean, this is a flea. Why should we, why should their thinking, why should their philosophy, why should their opinion about the Bible carry any weight with us whatsoever? Now, another question is, what are the implications of these questions and their answers for Christianity? Today is July 4th, and this is episode number 32 of the Reformed Rant. Let's rant. Context of this rant is going to be mostly set uh, in conversations with with people who are opponents of Christianity. Um, I was sent a question regarding street evangelism and apologetics, and the, the the question has to do with when you're preaching the gospel, when you're presenting the gospel. Uh, someone is inevitably, especially in our day and age, uh, unlike a couple of generations ago, uh, someone's going to ask the question about who wrote the Bible. And so <clears throat> really the, the focus of this rant is to do some apologetics around the area of epistemic authority on the street uh, and sometimes maybe social media, uh, where people are challenging the Bible itself. And as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity, contrary to uh, Joel Osteen, or not Joel Osteen, but uh, well, same genre, same cloth, Andy Stanley. Now, back to a question that I raised in the introduction to the rant. Why should we concern ourselves with a nation of mostly godless pagans anyway, right? Why should we do that? Well, we should concern ourselves with these questions because, 
first and foremost, and this is really the only reason uh, that we need to concern ourselves with these questions, and that's because Scripture demands that we do so. Uh, we are commanded, right, to sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts and always be prepared to give a reason for, an answer for the reason for the hope that's in us, right? Always be ready to answer, to provide a reason for the hope that is that is in us. Not in a way that satisfies the pagan, but in a way that satisfies God. You see, there, there are two people that uh, we uh, have an opportunity to please when we're giving an answer to a question regarding Christianity. There are two people. There's the person asking the question, are we aiming to please them? Are we aiming to satisfy them, to give them a satisfactory answer that will get them to nod their head and make sense to them? Or are we aiming to please and satisfy God? Right? So those are the two options of who you're going to please. And every apologist, every apologist, I use that word, there really isn't any such thing as an apologetic office. So when I say apologist, you just you can insert Christian there because every Christian is an apologist for the Christian message. Every Christian is an apologist for the Christian message. And in a sense, we're an evangelist. Even though we're not, we, you don't, I'm not saying we hold the office of evangelist, but we carry with us the message of the gospel, right? And that, that it should be really into personal exchanges, ongoing, continuously, uh, where the opportunity presents itself to introduce the message of Christ to, to the lost and to those who live in darkness, who are in bondage to sin. That should be part of our living out our Christianity. So we should concern ourselves with these questions because Scripture demands that we do so. And we should concern ourselves with godless American pagans because they make up influence and lead most of what we call evangelicalism in America and around the world today. Okay? I want to say that again. We should concern ourselves with godless American pagans because they make up influence and lead most of our churches in America and around the world. That's why we should concern ourselves with them. They are in our communities, in our visible communities. Of course, they're not elect. Of course, they're not regenerate. Of course, they're not sanctified. They haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they do not have a true knowledge of God or Scripture. Nevertheless, the way that we've been doing church for the last hundred years, these pagans have been brought in, I should say, in the church in general, the visible church, this has been going on for 2,000 years. If you've read church history, it's easy to see. There's no question that you can look at the crusaders and, 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 and the church over the course of the centuries and realize how could these people be filled with the Holy Spirit and doing some of the things that they do 
Um, for example, Anabaptists who were heretics, <laughs> uh, but in the visible church being drowned by others in the visible church as a punishment for their heresy. And this is, this is all supposed to be Christ. You look into the New Testament and you watch Jesus in Israel and see nothing remotely resembling that, nor do you see it among the apostles in the early church after Christ ascended. So we should concern ourselves with godless pagans. And in our context, if you're not in America, in wherever it is you are with those pagans, those of us who are in America need to concern ourselves with godless American pagans because they are in our Sunday school classes, they're in our churches, they're they are worshiping supposedly with us. They're throwing their hands up and, and praising Jesus. And they talk about how they love Jesus. And they're involved in all sorts of programs from Awana to Hearts and Hammers to missions to uh, youth to you name it, right? They're here. They're among us. We have to deal with that, right? So, and I've talked about fencing the community, and I'm not going to chase that rabbit today. Now, what we are going to talk about and what we are going to come to is this question, who wrote the Bible and why does it matter? Why does it matter for street apologetics? We're going to walk through what the purpose of the question is in most cases, help you think about why the question's being asked and where the conversation's going and how to get the conversation, how to raise the conversation up to the level of worldview uh, so that you can more effectively represent God and his message to the lost and the unbelieving world around you. All right, let's start with taking this question on the street and moving it up to the next level. What does that look like when it's done uh, in reality, when it's done effectively, when it's done according to scripture out there on the street? And uh, how can we do that and be more effective in how we represent the truth of God? And, that's, and so please understand when I say more effective, I don't mean effective in the sense that you're going to convince people and and woo them into the kingdom with your arguments. I mean more effective in from the standpoint that you are accurately uh, representing and being an ambassador for the truth that is revealed in Scripture. That's effective. What is not effective is mixing error in with truth. What is effective is articulating and presenting the truth in a way that it is consistent with the divine revelation of God speaking in Scripture. That's effective. All right, let's jump in. Okay, so we want to answer honestly and frankly, but with one guiding principle that is non-negotiable, and everyone who does any kind of witnessing, evangelism, apologetics, interacting with unbelievers— uh, and, 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 and anyone who does apologetics at all needs to uh, keep this principle in mind. This is a fundamental problem that I see with popular apologetics uh, in American Christianity. 
Okay, and it is this. Do not imply that an unbeliever is entitled to sit in judgment of God speaking in Scripture. In other words, you are not going to submit God and the Bible to the unbeliever, the unregenerate, for an examination to see if the, the Bible or God is worthy of their nod, their belief. Okay, so however you answer this question regarding who wrote the Bible or what the Bible is, do not wade into those waters because if you do, I can promise you this. The unbeliever has a set of criteria and they're going to use that criteria to judge God and they're going to use it to judge the Bible. It's really that simple. That's what they're going to do. And guess where they got the criteria from? It wasn't from faith. It wasn't from submission to the God who created them. No. It's from their totally depraved, fallen nature, their radical desire for autonomy and independence from God. They came up with their own criteria because they want to be like God, you see. And they're going to use their criteria to judge the Bible, to judge God, to judge the scripture, what they see in scripture, the, the actions and activities of God, the teachings of scripture, the claims of scripture, and so on and so forth. And they're going to use an ungodly criteria to do so, a criteria that is faithless. This is why it is in your best interest as an apologist, as a Christian, as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to avoid doing this. And I will say that the, there are the most popular method of Christian apologetics the world over employs this all the time. They, they place God in the dock and they allow the unbeliever to judge the evidence for Christianity. Uh, and uh, it is dismissed and mocked and vilified. It is, and the reason that the method is bad is not because it doesn't work. That's not why the, the reason the method is bad. The reason the method is deficient and, and the reason the method should be uh, shunned and ignored is because it's not biblical. Show me anywhere in Scripture where God ever tells people to sit in judgment of his word. It doesn't happen. God expects to be heard, acknowledged, and obeyed. So here's the answer. We turn to 1 Peter 1.21, and what we find is, okay, I've been asked the question by the unbeliever, who wrote the Bible? And the answer is, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So the Bible is not the product of a human just willing to act. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Bible is not the mere product of human will. 
but the product of God acting upon humans to write. That's the answer. The, the, the text that we're looking at kind of, says it this way, but men being carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay? Now, the extended answer might sound something like this. The Bible was written by God through approximately 40 men from a variety of cultures over a period of approximately 1,500 years. That's the, the historical, factual answer to that question. All right? Now, <clears throat> let's turn our attention to the conversation as it shifts, because these conversations, if you've had them with, with people, are going to shift, and they can get, they can go all over the map on you. So one of the things that you, one of the challenges, I think, for an apologist is to keep the conversation focused, right? Keep the conversation focused. Keep your discipline the discipline of mind in place. Know where you want to go and take the person to that area and avoid the distractions that are going to, and the red herrings that are going to be brought up. Because this is, this will happen just as soon as you start to ask the unbeliever questions they can't answer or are uncomfortable with. It will happen when an unbeliever sees that you are informed, that you have actually spent some time interacting with these questions. You've done a little reading. You've done some homework. You've put some, some, some cognitive energy into <clears throat> these questions. And when they see that, if they are not equipped, then they're going to find what they think might be low-hanging fruit. And you may think the objections that they're tossing at you are easy to overcome, but I would suggest that you not follow them to the low-hanging fruit and try to stay on track with the main topic. Because if, inevitably what this is, is a gospel presentation. This isn't a tit-for-tat. This isn't a, a tennis match. This isn't a, uh, let's say, debate. Okay, this isn't a... I want to be able to answer, you know, every question that you come up with or overcome every objection you throw at me. Because now what's happening is your own pride. My pride is getting in the way. And that happens from time to time. But we want to do our best to try to avoid that. Okay, so try to steer clear of that. So the conversation after that initial answer is going to move into an area very likely where objections begin. They have asked you, what, who wrote the Bible? You have given them an answer. Now, if if it's an honest inquiry, <clears throat> you may not enter an area of objections. But that, I think, is probably going to represent uh, few interactions. I think the overwhelming majority of interactions you're going to find will shift gears after your answer into objections regarding your answer. And this is where the conversation takes a turn to, into the branch of philosophy known as epistemology. Now, I don't want to weigh this down with philosophy, but there are some things uh, when you're doing evangelism and apologetics and delivering the gospel to folks where 
it's good to have a basic working knowledge of some of these concepts. And I understand that in our culture, Christians don't like to use their, I mean, human beings don't like to use their minds, but Jesus commanded us to love the Lord our God with all our being, right? That is, that is the greatest commandment of all, right? You go back to Deuteronomy with the Shema, and uh, we, you know, recognize that we are to love God with all our being, which includes our mind. And this means not only protecting the mind from wicked thoughts and thoughts that run contrary to God uh, in a variety of different ways, but it also refers to good thinking, sound thinking, thinking, as Greg Bonson would say, thinking God's thoughts after him, right? Aligning our thinking with God's thinking, right? And this brings us into the area of human knowledge, epistemology, and th that, that is a philosophical concept. Now, how does one know that God wrote the Bible through men? How do we know that the Bible isn't just another religious book written by superstitious, superstitious, unenlightened men, many of whom had a proclivity toward violence, misogyny, assaulted, assorted cultural and social ideas that were backwards, oppressive, and as modern people would say, downright abusive. Okay? How do we know this? So this is going to be the first objection, right? Now, all right, so the person has asked you who wrote the Bible. You gave them the answer. Here is their first uh, objection. Now, I'm going to share my tactic with you, and this sometimes really places, it, it has a tendency to upset people or turn them sideways. Too bad. All's fair in apologetics and evangelism. <laughs> as long as it's done in love. Okay, so think of it this way. This is how I think about it, guys. I'm dealing with someone who's giving God the middle finger, essentially. This person, this little peon on this tiny little planet was created by God to glorify God. To acknowledge God, to, to image God, to creation, in creation, and to God. And instead, they're shaking their fist at God. They're making demands on God. How dare they? How dare they? Simple. This isn't, this isn't an innocent person that if they just had more knowledge, if they just had a better way of thinking about it or a different way of looking at things, they would come to the conclusion that Jesus is Lord and they would surrender their heart to God and ask Christ to come into their heart. That is not what this is. I understand that that's how modern evangelical Christianity positions and frames the gospel. That's not how this is. It's, it's how modern Christianity teaches people to think about unbelievers. Wrong. That's not how the Bible describes unbelievers, sinners. It describes them as natural-born enemies and haters of God 
who are worthy of death, over whose head the wrath of God abides. And at any day, that trap door that they're walking around on in life could open and they could be dropped into the pit and the flames of eternal damnation any day and well-deserved. Okay, well-deserved. Nevertheless, despite their wicked disposition toward God, we love them because even though they are shaking their fist at God, they are created in the image of God. And as an act of love and kindness toward them, we are going to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them in hopes that God will open their eyes to the light of the gospel that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's the balanced view of the unbeliever that we, we must take. All right. So that said, I place... <clears throat> the person who is attacking Christianity on the defensive. See, because it's my belief that if you are going to launch an attack against a worldview, you can only do that if you have a worldview to which you are committed that contradicts the one you're attacking. Otherwise, why attack it? You have no ammunition to attack another worldview unless you have one of your own. And if you have one of your own, and everyone does, then it's fair game. And I'm not going to stand on the street corner or sit in the, in the restaurant and talk to whomever, a waitress, or wherever I might run a, across an unbeliever and have these exchanges. I'm not going to sit there and let them just attack Christianity up one side and down the other without standing up and giving a defense of their own view because they have to defend the ground from which they are launching the attack. That's my tactic, folks. That's what I do. And I suggest you do the same. Right? The best defense is a good offense. All right, so <clears throat> place the opponent on the defensive, but do so delicately. You want to get them engaged. <clears throat> so you want, to, you want to make sure that your questions... Uh, are honest and sincere and, and that they don't come off as an FBI interrogation. Where were you last night when the, the professor was found dead in his library? What were you doing? Give an account for your time from 8 to 12. And you don't want to come across like that. And you don't want to sound arrogant. You don't want to, and you want to watch your body, body language and your facial expressions. You don't want to come off as arrogant or cocky, or proud. It is an unnecessary distraction. So you want to be aware of not just your questions and how they sound. You want to be aware of how you're coming across to the person, because what do you want to do? This is part of the, the issue with those of, of us who are who have a proclivity to have these conversations with people. Uh, you, you, you want, you should want to love them with the gospel, Right? You should want to love them with a confrontation of the truth that is in Christ. That's why you're about to place them on the defensive. You're going to give them the good news of the gospel and show them the bankruptcy of their own worldview. That's what you're doing. right? And hopefully, uh, should God will it, 
they may see the light of the truth of the gospel in Christ. That's God's work, not yours. Your work is to accurately represent the gospel, the scripture, the Christian message. So you place them on the defensive. And so they've come back at you and they've made this comment about the Bible. You know, how do you know the Bible was written through men? There is an answer to that question. I'm not going to give it just yet because I want to get this person engaged, right? You can ask certain, you can give certain answers to questions that will shut down the conversation immediately, right? And you don't want to do that uh, if, if at all possible. So it's a better tactic to ask questions that that will lead to a more fuller presentation of the gospel. That's what you're wanting to do, you know. It's kind of like, uh, do you want to cut your conversation off at For God So Love the World and be done, or would you rather be able to say, For God So Love the World, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life? You want to get the whole message out, or only a third of it, or a tenth of it, right? So that's, that's the thinking here on my part. Good, bad, indifferent. That's how I think. That's how I look at it. If you like it, use it. If you think if you think it reflects scripture, use it. If you think it doesn't, hey, send me a note, leave me a message. Um, I'll show you how to do that. I'll talk about how to do that a little later at the end of the podcast. But uh, it's how I it's how I operate. Okay, so putting the person on the defensive rather than answering this other question, how do you know immediately? You say, okay, I, I, I'll answer that question, but I would like to ask you a couple of quick questions as well. W- what do you think about the Bible? What What do you think that book is? Who Who do you think wrote it? How do you, and how How do you know uh, these things? And what standard are you using to judge it? Now, I wouldn't uh, use all those questions at once, right? We call this double barrel, triple barrel questions. Start with one just with just one question. Get the conversation going. What do you think about the Bible? Or, well, okay, who do you think wrote the Bible? Now the conversation is moving, right? What do you think about the Bible? Now, their answer may be something like, well, you know, the the Bible's a religious book written by religious fanatics who are scientifically unenlightened. Uh, Okay, well, you know, by our standards, maybe these men were scientifically uh, unenlightened. Uh, They didn't have airplanes in those days, and we do, so that's part of science, so okay, fine, but the Bible really isn't a book about science. Science isn't the topic, right? The book is indeed a religious book, but are they religious fanatics, right? So this may this may be their answer. Uh, next question, then, okay, that's your answer. How do you know this about the Bible? How do you know that these men were just a bunch of religious fanatics, right? Well, answers are going to vary, but Mostly, they're going to call upon or lean upon or rest upon an uncritical acceptance of modern science as the final arbiter for truth and human knowledge. Uh, They may say something like, well, you know, if you believe the Bible, the earth is only about 7,000 years old or so. Uh, Or if, if you believe the Bible, there's such a thing as miracles. And we know, scientifically speaking, that the earth is old. Or, or they may say that, you know, we know that humans evolved uh, <clears throat> over millions of years. Or they may say that, you know, well, we, miracles are impossible. Snakes don't talk. Donkeys don't talk. Uh, and so on and so forth. All right. So this may be their answer. They're taking you into their worldview, 
which is where you want them to go. This is what you want them to do. This is exactly where you want to go. Because step one in the method of apologetics that I use, which is presuppositional, is to step into the shoes of the unbeliever and show them the bankruptcy and the, the inconsistency and the incoherence of their own worldview, but you want to do so in a way uh, that is focused on loving them with the truth. I'm not, no, I'm not saying you want to do it in a way that's not offensive, uh, because I think that's going to be impossible. What your focus needs to be is loving them with the truth, not an argument, not showboating, not displaying your gifts and your logical and philosophical acumen or anything of this nature, but simply loving them with the truth of the gospel, okay? So this answer that they've just given you regarding science and the impossibility of certain things takes us directly into the question of the nature of human knowledge and epistemic authority, right? What is knowledge, okay? You know, this person says they know that miracles are impossible. They know the earth is old. Okay, so let's talk about knowledge. What do you think knowledge is, since you claim to have some, right? If a person is sophisticated or read at all on the subject, they're probably going to say something like, knowledge is justified true belief, okay? Justified true belief. And now, now we start to get into an interesting conversation. A lot of people that you're going to talk to on the streets will never get to this level, guys. They're just not going to get here. You, you're, you're going to end up answering or fielding uh, questions or asking them questions that they just simply don't know the answer to. Uh, and I suggest that when you start to feel that happening, that you you pull up and give them the gospel. That's really what you want to do. This is what this is about anyhow. Apologetics is just giving people the gospel and answering questions that they have or objections that they might have uh, or clearing up any misunderstandings they might have about what Christianity teaches or claims. There's a lot of uh, confusion and ignorance regarding the claims of Christianity because of what I said earlier in the podcast that American evangelical churches are filled with godless pagans who don't, uh, you know, care. They don't give a rat's behind about understanding the Bible. They just don't. And so they're out there and the world thinks that, you know, these are the Christians and they're not. They're, they're pagans wearing, you know, a Jesus sign or they've got a Jesus tattoo uh, tattooed on their on their person, and they go to church, and so they and they spout off Christianity teaches da 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 da, and the world doesn't know any better. So they world becomes uh, <clears throat> gets all this information about Christianity. It's just false. It's not coming from the Bible. It's coming from you know false Christians who don't read the Bible and don't know any better. All right. So just a quick sidebar. This question of knowledge could take us into metaphysics and the question of what it means to be a human. If you, if you continue down this path of, of a more sophisticated conversation, right? Now, that said, you cannot really understand human knowledge without understanding humans and understanding knowledge. 
right? In order to know what it means to know, you, you have to know what a human is because you're talking about a human knowing, right? And you have to know what knowledge is. So understanding what a human being is, knowing what a human being is, is a necessary condition here for epistemology. So metaphysics and epistemology, uh, not quite as detached as some people would like to keep them. They are absolutely bound up in one another. And if you read John Calvin, you, you quickly understand and agree with him that uh, you cannot know what a human being is unless you know who God is, right? Because a human being is a being created in the image of God. If you don't know that, you don't know what a human is. So knowledge of humans is dependent on their knowledge of God, and knowledge of God is dependent on their knowledge of humans. They are bound up in one another. Okay, so what is knowledge? The person, the person is going to come up with some answer like justified true belief. And, of course, that raises another question. Just be curious. What is justified true belief? What does that mean? You know, what does it mean for a belief to be justified? Right? You're talking about beliefs and justifying those beliefs. Well, the most constant, the most common answer that uh, you're going to get from folks is that justifying a belief involves forming beliefs that are backed by sufficient evidence. Okay, so now we have to have some evidence in order to justify believing something. Right? I'll come back to, I don't think I'm going to get into it in this particular uh uh, rant, but you know, justified true belief basically is saying that someone has good reason for believing a particular thing. It's not accidental. It's it's they have evidence. They have reasons to hold to the belief that they're holding to. They've looked at that evidence. They've examined it, uh, and and therefore they think they have knowledge. Right. So. This is going to be one of the most, if you're dealing with someone who's sophisticated enough, this is going to be something that, uh, a common answer that you're going to give, get from them. Justified, true belief, right? Now, that said, there's another question that's lurking. Is the belief that all beliefs must be justified itself justifiable? Now you're, now you're getting into a very sophisticated area, right? In other words, if we must have sufficient evidence in order for belief to rise to the level of true knowledge, then shouldn't this claim, which is a belief as well, be accompanied by the same sort of evidence? Okay? Now, the answer you receive is likely, is likely going to continue uh, to grasp for uncritically accepted assumptions about the power of scientific reasoning. But this is only begging the question. Not only is it begging the question, but it also ends in what we call an infinite regress. Because you're going to ask for a reason for the reason, and reason for the reason, and another reason for the reason, ad infinitum. Right? Justified true belief requires a transcendent belief-forming model to which all rational brains ought to subscribe or adopt and embrace. Okay? Such a model now, because what's being said here is that no human being should accept beliefs like X 
unless they are accompanied, or let's just say beliefs, period, unless the belief is accompanied by good evidence. Okay? That's a model for how human beings should embrace beliefs or form beliefs. Our beliefs should be formed in accordance with that model. That's what's being argued. That's what's being claimed. Okay? That's how we should go about forming beliefs. Now, this model implies that knowledge must have some sort of ground or foundation. All right? Now, I said a few minutes ago that a discussion on uh, epistemic standards, a discussion in the area, in the field of epistemology, uh, could and maybe even should, I think, I think should, take you into metaphysics. So the next question for someone who is taking you down this path, and remember, this all started with someone saying, what is, who wrote the Bible? Right? And this, this particular scenario that I'm playing out is coming from an atheistic framework. This is a, an atheist who thought that they're going to have a little fun with you as a Christian since you're out there preaching that everybody has to believe in Jesus or they're going to go to hell. So now the next question for uh, the atheist is, what are human beings? What are we? Uh, the question is associated with what we call the mind-body problem in philosophy. So here, here it is. If God is not, and human beings are the product of nature, the laws of physics, just doing what they do, then humans are just their brains. There is no mind independent from or outside of the human brain. The mind and the brain are one and the same. Now, this is the unavoidable and necessary end of scientism. This conclusion that the mind and the brain are one and the same is inevitable. There's no escaping it. Now, if, if you're thinking about this, you may be able to feel the clutches of skepticism closing in on you at this point. Maybe not. Let's talk a little bit about why this is happening. And what I am doing here, folks, I said earlier that the ground from which attacks against Christianity are launched itself must be defended. And if it can't be, if it can't be defended, then you have to find different ground to launch your attacks. If you have to give up your ground from which you're launching attacks, then your attacks are meaningless. They're nullified. They can be ignored. They can be dismissed. All right? This is what we're doing, you see. We're looking at the alternative to God. If God did not write the Bible, then what? Well, this, this is what follows. And maybe we'll do a couple more podcasts on this subject and take you through to the end because I'm definitely not going to get to the end here. I'm going to stop here in a few minutes in, in exactly this place. If God is not and humans are the product of nature, then the laws of physics are just doing what they do and human beings are just their brains. And the mind and the brain 
are one and the same. If this is the case, then everything that happens in the universe happens as a result of the laws of physics. Everything. Humans, then, like everything else, like the leaf falling from the tree, falling from the tree, everything in the universe, everything, are just passive in their movements. The wind blows, the tree moves. The tree didn't move, the wind moved it. It's being moved by the laws of physics in everything they do. This includes human beings in everything we do, as well as how we form beliefs, you see. Everything a human thinks he or she knows is just the activity of the human brain, which is itself like a tree being moved by the wind or the laws of physics. Nature is moving the brain, that specific brain, the way nature is moving that specific brain. Just like every tree moves differently when the wind is blowing it because of the particular shape and nature of that tree, so it is true that the human brain responds or is moved, let's say, better word, maybe moved, a tree responds to wind by bending. Uh, so the human brain responds or is moved by the laws of physics, uh, that particular brain, in just the way uh, it does because of the activity of the laws of physics on the brain. Right? This means it is absolutely impossible for someone who holds this view to provide a logically compelling defense of the idea that humans form their own beliefs based on some transcendent belief-forming model. Essentially what this means, folks, is that all the sensory data that we are taking in, that our brains is taking in, the brain is doing something with uh, the data that uh, it is collecting or receiving from nature as it encounters nature through through the five senses. Um, and as Kant would say, the, the, the brain is, is organizing. It's, I think he has 12 categories where the brain organizes these experiences. And it's really the brain that uh, is the center of, for, for lack of a better word, the center of, of your reality. So you really don't know if this is true, you really don't know if there is an external world out there somewhere. Because at the end of the day, uh, you have no way of validating that. Since you are just your brain who is being acted upon by nature, uh, this really, this nature could be an illusion. So you start to slide into... Uh, solipsism, you start to slide into a radical skepticism where you can't validate an external world. Okay, so if this is the case, if this is where your worldview stands, then what basis would you ever have to look at someone 
and demand that they be able to satisfactorily answer the question, who wrote the Bible? That's the, that's the, the, the answer that takes us through to the, um, the atheistic challenge. And it all comes down to epistemic authority, right? We start as a Christian, we start with God. And we know that the Bible is the Word of God because of the testimony and witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds that God has opened our eyes to see the truth. Knowledge, you have to remember this. Knowledge is person relative. Knowledge is person relative. I know my wife. What, there's almost 8 billion people in the world? that do not know her. I do. Does the fact that the overwhelming majority of the world does not know my wife do anything to invalidate my knowledge of my wife? Of course not. Knowledge of God and knowledge of Scripture is like that. That's what knowledge of God is like. It's knowing a person. And our authority, our epistemic authority for what is true about reality, about the world we live in, what is true about human beings, what is true about the Bible, our epistemic authority for these things is Scripture, God speaking in Scripture. God created us. God implanted in us a certain sense of himself, a knowledge of himself, and God created us with the ability to know something about the world through both natural and special revelation. Now, the Christian is privileged to have had his or her eyes opened to experience the work of God on the, the stony heart so that now we know you see, but this is not a blind faith. I know God and I know the things of God just as well as I know my wife. And when I say well, I don't mean uh, uh, qualitatively. I mean in the same way. I know I have this knowledge and I cannot not know it. The same way that I cannot not know my wife. I cannot know God intimately through faith in Christ and then not know him. Once I know, I know. <laughs> Once you know someone, you know someone. You cannot not know that person uh, any longer. And someone said, well, if the person leaves and you haven't seen him in 20 years, well, you know, that's taking, that's carrying the analogy uh uh, a foot, uh, taking it f far away from where I'm intending to use it. You know someone, you know someone. I cannot not know my wife. She's going to come home this evening. I will know her. She's here. I know who she is. I, it's not possible that she's going to walk through the door and I'm going to not know her any longer. Knowing God is like knowing a person. Uh, there's a, a, a book, a couple of books, written by uh, Elizabeth Meeks, on this subject, uh, loving to know and longing to know 
both of those book, books, uh, her name is Meek, not Meeks, uh, both of those bu books are very good uh, from an epistemological and a reformed standpoint. All right, I'm going to bring this to a close here. I will do another rant uh, on this subject. In fact, I'm good. the next rant I do is going to pick up right here, and we'll carry this through some more scenarios. We'll back off the, um, the more sophisticated scenario, and uh, we'll get into some, some other problems that the non-Christian worldview encounters when it starts to reject God. Not only do we run into the problem of making human knowledge uh, impossible, we can't really know anything uh, unless we know, uh, acknowledge God. We can't account for our knowledge. Let's say it this way. You can't account for your knowledge of reality uh, apart from God, period. You just, you can't. Every attempt to construct a worldview, what that's saying is that every attempt to construct a worldview that involves human knowledge or entails human knowledge apart from God fails. That's basically what Van Til meant when he said that you can't know anything without God. That's what Bonson meant when he would make this argument. What he's saying is that the worldview itself in logically entails contradictions. That's that's where it goes. That's that's where the the argument goes. There are many other problems uh, that we run into from a knowledge standpoint in the area of logic uh, and certainly in the area of morality, right? Because there are undeniable experiences in human life that uh, cannot be accounted for apart from, apart from acknowledging the Creator. And every attempt to account for those undeniable experiences, apart from the Creator, reduces to irrationalism. That's the presuppositional approach. You step into the shoes of the non-Christian worldview, dismantle it, show its bankruptcy, intellectually speaking, and then you take them to the gospel of Jesus Christ and explain to them why they experience knowledge, how it is they can know, why logic works, why science works, why morality is meaningful, why humans have value, why they experience the things they experience within the Christian worldview, and you show them how Christianity accounts for those things. You give them the gospel. All right, listen, thank you for listening. Happy 4th of July. Um, if you have feedback, comments that you want to leave, you can do so if you're listening to the, the Reformed Rant in the Anchor app itself. If not, you can go over to reformedreasons.com and uh, leave a comment on our blog. I rant a little more than I blog. Um, I'm just a working stiff, and so I don't have time to uh, do as much as I would I would want. Um, Additionally, we have what, a couple of Facebook pages. Uh, we are uh, on with the Reformation Charlotte Facebook page. Uh, come over there. We've got a lot of great guys over there, a lot of great conversation. And then uh, also we have um, another page that's um, the Reformed Grant uh, Facebook page. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> she is. So, 
you can reach us at any of those uh, locations and using any of those those methods. Keep the faith, stay in the fight, continue to witness to the truth of the gospel that is in Christ Jesus. Speak the truth uh, in love to this dark, dying culture, and all the cultures around the world are dark and dying cultures, spiritually dead cultures. Continue to be the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to show the world what it means to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com Fighting.